Jesus' message to the Church of Philadelphia. If you haven't been tracking, we've been looking at Revelation 2 and 3 over the past number of weeks. Uh, Jesus' messages to each of the seven churches of Asia Minor. We've been going one Sunday at a time, looking at uh, the messages, gleaning things. And all of it is first and foremost a revelation of Jesus before anything else. But within that, how Jesus reveals himself directly speaks to what he wants to do in our lives. And so today, we're looking at Jesus, who is holy and true, and the one who opens up doors that no man can shut and closes doors that no man can open. That's who Jesus is. We're looking at faithfulness to Jesus during trials leads to promotion and purpose. Faithfulness to Jesus during trials leads to promotion and purpose. I hesitate a little to use the word promotion because that sounds very corporate, but, and uh, it's not about promotion in a job sense. It's about stepping into the door that G only Jesus opens up for you to walk into a manifestation of your God-given purpose. And I, I want to say that over every one of you from the depths of the heart of God this morning, that each of you have a calling and even if you don't believe it, it's still true. But it's really helpful if we can link our faith with Jesus and believe that there is a calling. There's a gift. There's a call. And you know what? Your call does not have to look like mine. And if you don't do what I do, preaching with a microphone, whatever, that does not mean that you have any less of a calling than I do. And God's hand is upon your life to bring you into a calling. What is similar is that all of us are called to do the same thing, which is to partner with Jesus in the building of his church. That's what your calling is for, to express God in the earth. You may say, wow, well, that sounds impossible. Yeah, it is impossible, but, but when you understand something of that anointing that's upon your life, the calling, it's not actually impossible because it's God in you. And I want every person in this room to taste what it's like to have God use you. And I've tried all this stuff in this earth, and I can guarantee you there ain't no joy. There ain't no fulfillment like that. And I've, again, I've done a lot of the stuff, you know, that we have in this earth. So faithfulness to Jesus during trials. You guys know what a trial is? I'm not talking about a courtroom. I'm, you know, the, the, uh, the trial of the century. We're, no, we're talking about a trial where we face opposition. To what God speaks to us. And it <laughs> when God speaks a promise to you, the exact opposite thing is likely to happen. Where it looks like that is not going to happen in my life. And all of that is a test of faith. That's all it is. Cling on to what Jesus says to you when you're in the trial. It leads to a promotion into purpose. So having said all that, I'm going to just... Um, Read Revelation 3, 7 through 13, then I'm going to tell a story, and then we'll get into the scripture. So let's read it. And to the church, angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Who is that that we're speaking of? Jesus. That's, who he, that's a description of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews but are not, 
but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out from heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So uh, I'm just going to share a little bit from our own story, Minda and myself, uh, kind of in the context of my story. So in, in you guys know I became a believer, uh, end of high school, spent a year not knowing um, any other born-again Christians for a whole year, and in, uh, by 1997, after getting involved in church, surrendering to Jesus in a greater way, uh, being involved, uh, as I said, in church community, uh, in, uh, by 1997, um, I began to sense a stirring of the call of God inside of me, and for me, this is what that looked like. I would read the, 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 the Bible, and I would see the Apostle Paul and I would see Jesus, but the Apostle Paul definitely stuck out, and, and I see him uh, going to nations and traveling around and, and God using, and there being signs and wonders and miracles, and, and, and they're going into not just a church, but going into nations and breaking open regions and, and kind of having the bigger picture of, of the global eternal church and carrying that, and I had that stirred in me. I wanted to go to nations. I wanted to uh, not just be in a church, although I love being in a church, but also to have uh, a role in, in multiple churches and helping other churches build. Does that make sense? And just these things begin to stir in me. It's not like uh, I looked at the, the, the list of po potential callings and, ooh, that one looks good. It, 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 it stirred in me. I couldn't have helped but to want that. Does that make sense? I actually didn't want it. I actually was afraid of it, but I wanted it. But I was afraid of it, but I wanted it. And so... Uh, that happened beginning in 1997, and by 2009, I was landing, bringing my wife and family, and we were moving to South Africa, and uh, God began just opening up doors. We came into partnership uh, with a translocal apostolic team that had partner churches all around the world, ultimately invited to come on to that team. I find myself in other nation, in another nation, in other nations, helping other churches, leading a church, and, uh, and, and, and for me, what that was like is stepping into something that once had been a dream. You follow what I'm saying? Uh, no, you don't, actually. You don't even know what I'm, you, uh, I had conversations when I first started feeling this, knowing I called into ministry, and my family asking, okay, so are you going to go to seminary? No, um, I don't feel to. Are you, uh, well, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to have this ministry career? Well, um, I feel like I'm, I'm supposed to be discipled in the context of the, the local church. Okay, so what, do they, are they offering you a job? No. Uh, but I, but you see, follow what I'm saying. I, I did not know how I was going to get from here to there. All I knew to do is to be faithful with what he was telling me to do in this season and trust that somehow it leads there. Now, what happens in between walking in South Africa to the beginning of the stirring of this call was a whole bunch of 
testing and trial. So I just want to touch on a little bit of that real quick. We moved to a place called Dublin, Georgia, and uh, the metropolis of, of Dublin, Georgia. Population 22,000. I'm from Atlanta, big city. That's what I'm comfortable with. Dublin, not comfortable with. And uh, when we are, we moved there with a group of people, all from one kind of church, all of whom kind of connected with this church in a place called Dublin. And it was kind of a, um, uh, like, where an apostolic team, I know you may not really understand, but something similar to NCMI was being birthed from. And uh, and the guy who led the church was, uh, he felt like his highest call was to be a spiritual father and help train and raise up young leaders. And so, and that was, that was definitely the case. And when we moved, we, Minda and I started looking at houses to rent when we first were moving into the city, and we all saw all these places, all of them were too expensive, and we find this one place that was like well within our budget, and we got there, we were like, what's the catch? This place, I, this is our favorite house, and it's like the least expensive. It's awesome, and as we wanted to line things up, before we made the phone call, I looked at the street address on the mailbox, and it said 212, and I felt a stirring in my spirit that there's something significant about that street address, 212. We looked up 2 Kings 212, and that's the scripture, if you know the story, where Elisha, the spiritual son of Elijah, is crying out to Elijah and, and, and wanting a, a double portion of the anointing that, that's on his life before Elijah, the spiritual father, leaves. And we knew that God was saying, I'm sending you to the city, and it's to be, to, to be fathered. It's to be fathered, to be raised, trained up in your calling, and you're going to leave this place with a double portion anointing, so to speak, just like Elisha. That was 2000 and something, <laughs> one. Uh, yes, it was, 2001. And uh, so that's, so God speaks, praise the Lord, this is awesome, we're going to be trained, we're going to be raised up, we're going to be sent from this place, and a year passes, and another year passes, and another year passes, and we're being faithful, and we're ministering where we are, but it's not what we feel called to do. And Minda during that time, if anything, was kind of more recognized by the leadership, I felt like the forgotten one. Minda was over the youth. I was under the junior high, over the junior high. Maybe I was under it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and we're scraping by. I'm working in a school that's based out of there. I'm also trying to do mortgages, doing whatever we can do to kind of support ourselves, we're scraping by. And I can remember feeling so forgotten after about five years. We are barely making it, if even making it. The ministry, the junior high and the youth group, we had felt the season was up. We were transitioning that. We had no idea what we were doing in ministry. We weren't really financially making it, and we're in this podunk city in middle Georgia that feels anything but the nations of the earth. We see no way forward. It seemed as though God had forgotten us, never mind all the leaders around us. There's no door opening up. Do you follow what I'm saying? All of our friends who moved there, who were around our age, one by one, every single one had relocated and moved, and we were the only ones left in the church our age. This is once a church that had been like 500 people, and we were the only ones left. There was a difficult season in the church. A lot of people left during this thing. We felt to relocate. We felt drawn to try to go make what was in our hearts happen, and we would go to our leadership, and we would say what we're feeling to do, 
and they just wouldn't feel right about it. And uh, we felt so discouraged. Minda had an idea, and they just didn't feel right about it. A few, maybe a year later, I felt something. And it was something that I really am called to do. And I submitted it to them, and they just didn't feel right about the timing. And I remember just leaving that meeting, tail between my legs. We're not making it. I'm struggling to raise these two boys. I don't even know why we're in this city anymore. And one day, the phone rings. And uh, Ferris Cox, the, the lead pastor of the church, asks us to go to his house, meet him at his house, and, uh, and he sits us down and, and describes how one of the pastoral staff are relocating, and, and they really have been praying as an eldership, and they felt that we're supposed to come un, under that role, and they want to ordain us, bring us onto the pastoral staff, and, and uh, employ us full-time, and all that kind of stuff. And like, in a blink of an eye, on a dime, our life changed. Like, all of a sudden, we find ourselves walking in something that we're actually called to do. We're, we're recognized. We're ordained. All of a sudden, are you following what I'm saying? On, on a dime, but it was faithfulness during a long period. I'm not talking about a, a difficult month. I'm talking about a difficult five years. And so, <laughs> as I say that, I realize Border City Church is five years old. <laughs> and so... It can change on a dime. And, and, uh, and then uh, subsequent to that, we, we, we were on pastoral staff for about two years. We started feeling a transition again after that. We just knew God was transitioning us. We had a corporate prayer meeting one night um, as a church, and I was pacing in the back uh, just praying. And I remember uh, it's like kind of like everyone else went on praying about something else, and I just had this connection with God very personally, and I was in the back of the room, and I remember just praying, Lord, you led us to this place seven years ago with a word that we were to be fathered in this place, and that we were to receive kind of a double portion anointing, and that we would be sent from this place with that, and I forgot to tell you another part of the story. Remember that address, that 212 address, that where we rented? We rented that for several years. We bought the house next door by this point. The new, that address is 214. That 2 Kings 2.14 is the point where Elisha receives the double portion anointing. We felt like that was a confirmation that this is the season. We've been preparing for it. We've been following our spiritual father. Now it's time to, to receive something of, of that double portion. And I was in the back praying one night with this, in this corporate prayer meeting, and I was like, Lord, you have sent us to this place, and we know that you spoke to us about that. And Lord, I, I'm here for that. That is why I'm here. I'm asking you for that, and I'm asking that we'll be sent from this place with that. And in that moment, the, the wife of the lead pastor takes the microphone, probably 200 people in the room or something, and she's like, Paul, come up here. And she said, I feel like the Holy Spirit is saying that you are receiving a double portion anointing and that you've been found faithful. And, that, and she had no idea what I was praying in the background. Such a confirmation of the Holy Spirit. And things started shifting from, from that night. And... Um, Fast forward the clock, God spoke to us so clearly about relocating to South Africa. We brought it to our leadership, told them what we felt like we were feeling. They all, it was 100% agreement, Next, you know, unlike the first two times, 100% agreement. God opens up a door. We find ourselves walking into South Africa. God just opens up all these things from that point. The point I'm getting at here is the normal biblical course of action is God stir puts a desire in your heart, and then there is a long process 
of being found faithful to live in what he's called you to do and to the point where it looks like all hope is lost that he will fulfill that desire you put in your heart in your heart and if you hold on one day on a dime that whole thing will change and when it does you will know you did not do it he does it we're here to see his will done but he's the one who does his will we don't force it we don't make it happen we follow him and simply remain faithful and i'm wanting to encourage you you have a call you have a gift and god's hand is upon your life to bring it out of you and to learn to partner with him and allow him to do how it works if you want it to be comfortable you disqualify yourself this morning if you are willing to follow him wherever he leads you regardless of how uncomfortable it can be for a season because the difficulty doesn't last forever the seasons shift some things are for learning, but they're not for living. And they may be five years long, these difficult seasons, but they don't last forever. If you're willing to follow the Lamb wherever he leads you, you will walk into something of your calling. And so with that, we go back to this first verse, in the seventh verse. How does Jesus, how is he identified? He is the one who is holy and true. Holy means set apart, means other than, means different. The pathway of walking into your calling is going to require you to walk in a way that is different from all the other folk around you, even some Christians. You're going to see Christians bailing by the wayside, compromising on things that you know God is, is telling you to walk in, and you're going to see them compromise, you remain faithful to the principles that he gives you. Holy, the one who is holy, the one who is true. You know what true is? It means you've been tested and you're true. You're, you're found pure. You're found, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, although in Jesus' case it is. True is when something has been tested and it's, it's, it's right. It's almost like, let's talk, uh, we're in Detroit. So they test a car before they release it into the public. They've got to find it true first. Do you follow, follow what I'm saying? They've got to, they've got to do some, some, I don't know, uh, what do you call those? Yeah, they've got to make sure it's roadworthy, but, but like, what do you call those dummies? Crash test dummies, yeah, they got to do all that stuff. they got to find it true, then we can release it to the public. The one who is holy, he's other than, he doesn't operate like the rest of the world, and he's true. In the face of the opposition, he remains true. Why is that significant? If, he, if that's who he is, guess what? That same one who wants to open up doors, he's the one who can help you to remain holy and true. So that, as the rest of the verse says, I am the one with the key of David. A key, able to open up, who opens up and no one can shut, and shut and no one opens. I open up a door. He puts a, a calling in your life. He's got to be the one to open up the door to make that calling come out into its rightful place. And when you walk through that door, you don't have to try to make your calling happen. You're in your calling. You're doing your calling. You follow? Is this making sense? But you've got to be holy and true. I don't mean sinless perfection. I mean found faithful to the things that God has called you to do that he will test after he gives you the promise, but before he opens the door. If you're wondering about this key of David, it's a reference to Isaiah 22, 22, where God is giving He's taking the calling away from one man who is found unfaithful and giving it to another who is found faithful. 
How many of you want your calling to end up in the hands of another person? No thanks. Holy and true. That's what God's looking for. You follow what I'm saying? I'm not talking about sinless perfection. Minda and I were not perfect in 2008 when God started calling us to relocate to South Africa. Trust me. Minda, can I get an amen? We're not perfect. Our marriage still needed to develop. Our parenting still needed to develop. You know, wobble and teeter in different places. That's not what we're talking about. But had we been tested in fire? Yes. Had we come through what God wanted of us in that test? Yes. Albeit imperfect, I hope we're, hope we're making sense. Jesus remains faithful. No, let me just say this. Jesus is the one who opens up the doors to our destiny and calling as we remain faithful to how he has taught us to live. And in verse 8, it says, I know your works. I just want to quickly point out every single one of the seven churches hears those words. I know your works. And the point there is double-sided coin. I know your works. That means... You, have you ever done things in faith and obedience to Jesus and you wonder, does anybody even know? Does anybody care? And there's those times where you realize, I, I saw that. And you feel the affirmation of God in the little things that you have done in obedience to him. And he's saying, I know your works. It's, it's, it, it, it's, it's, the, it's, it's like a tearjerker when you, when you have those moments where you realize God appreciates what I've done for him. I know your works. Other side of that coin, I know your works. The stuff that you think no one knows, no one sees, because I don't see God, he did, but he saw what you did when you thought no one else was looking. I know your works. And it's a twofold thing that he's saying to each of the churches. I know your works. Philadelphia is the only church that has no correction of these seven churches. There's no, there's no correction in here. He says, see, I have set before you an open door, and I, and I want to prophesy over myself and every person in this room. Jesus would say, I have set before you an open door. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. You have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. I want to say to you this morning, you, in so much as you are following Jesus, are on a path that leads to an open door. I've walked through several open doors in my life, and I am on a path right now to another open door. And I'm being tested and tried. I think I'm beginning to catch the thing and actually realize, thank you for the trial. Thank you for the trial. Because <laughs> I don't have to worry anymore. I'm good. He's allowing trial, but he's bigger than the trial. He's not going to forsake me in the trial. And the trial is all so that I have the privilege of remaining faithful in the face of opposition to the things I'm clinging on to, to believe him and to see him open up another open door. Same is the case with you. Same is the case with us collectively as a church. Jesus has you on a path. I just want to tell another story. <laughs> Hopefully we can say it real quick. Fast forward the clock. We, we're in South Africa, 2009. God starts opening up doors. We're with a particular church, New Covenant Church, Bryanston. It's where the NCMI team originally was kind of birthed out of. Had the privilege of walking with this wonderful church. Open up doors, 
We're not on like formal leadership, but they have us preaching often. We feel celebrated. We have the most amazing friends. All those friends that we gave up in Dublin, it's like God gave us a hundredfold. More friends than we could even have time to develop the friendship with. We felt so blessed. God was providing for us. And then 2011 came. And it was time for another door to open up in 2012, which means 2011 was one of those years. Beginning of 2011, Chanel Rousseau, and I hope to God we can bring her through, a prophetic woman, such an amazing woman. Chanel Rousseau uh, comes to us at a gathering. Um, she's, she's on the NC, my team, prophetic lady, and she says, um, I've been praying for you, and I feel as though I see that you are, the door behind you hasn't yet shut, and the door in front of you hasn't yet opened fully. Both are partially opened. One's closing, the other one's opening, but you're in what we call the intermediate stage called the corridor of hell. <laughs> we were in the best time of our life when she said this. Like, what corridor? Get thee behind me, Satan. You don't know what spirit you're of. I reject it. I, re I, I like you, Chanel, but this prophecy is not, is not right. That day, I went to a meeting, and some things started happening through a conversation where the dealings of God started in my life that would last throughout that year. Uh, uh, the, uh, up to that point was the most severe dealings of God in my life. Just certain things that needed to come up to another level and things like that. But God was speaking about an open door. Our, um, our jobs were on a three-year contract that ended at the end of that year. We were on a type of visa that we couldn't just go look for employment. We could only, uh, I don't know if you know about visas and types of employment that you can get, but we could only have employment with what we were doing. We couldn't go look for a job in South Africa. So if this job doesn't continue, we have no job in South Africa, no ability to earn income in any other way, and we'll have to go back to America. And uh, God starts speaking to us about an open door, and we knew that God was saying to us, do not extend this job. I'm going to open up another door. Literally everything was on the line. If God didn't open up a job by the end of 2011, what's the world? The world be deported, <laughs> you know? And um, literally, it was at the end of October, after we had been dealt with by God, all these trials and tribulations throughout that year, so many things that I'm not even going to go into, at the very end of the year, we have a conversation and find out that there's a man who has been leading a church and he feels he needs to hand it over and the eldership, the pastoral team at our church felt like we were the ones to, that they would recommend to and the next thing I know, boom, boom, boom. And we uh, knew Visa, knew everything and God opens up another door. That was the fulfillment of the stuff that he put in our heart. Do you follow what I'm saying? I want to say, there are doors. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, what is your door? You may not know the specifics of the door. And in fact, you almost surely don't know the specifics and won't know the specifics. But you might be able to describe what God's put in your heart. What is your door? And are there desires or promises that he's put in your heart to see with your life? just want to make a little note about that, that the door that he opens is, is very likely less about position and more about your identity and being established in doing what you're called to do. 
Does that make sense? You don't need to be ordained as a preacher to do your call. If you're called as a preacher, you do. <laughs> but even still, you, you don't even, you start preaching before you get ordained. You know, you follow what I'm saying. So this, don't think about position. Think about the gift of God inside of you. He says, for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. You have a little strength. The idea here is that these guys, though they're, they're being faithful, God doesn't even have a correction for them. Jesus doesn't have a correction for them. But there's little strength, and they've kept their word and have not denied my name. And if you look even in the next uh, two, two verses, in verse 10 it says, because you have kept my command to persevere. The idea here is that these guys are facing some challenges, some trials, and they're remaining faithful in the middle of that. And so I want to say again what I said earlier, trials are an opportunity for promotion and doors to open up. That's what they're for. <laughs> and too many of us, especially charismatics, can I pick on us a little bit? Every time we have a trial, we want to rebuke the devil. Well, sometimes the, God's using the devil, and God actually wants you to cling on to the word of God in the face of the enemy, because it's like weights in a weight room. You keep on pushing against that resistance. You're building spiritual muscle until one day the devil's going to see he does not have entrance to you. And just like he did in Luke 4 with Jesus, he will flee for a season. And you will find yourself walking into your call, just like Jesus did also in Luke chapter 4. So a couple tips around this. One... Tips on maneuvering through trials in route to a door opening. You ready for a few of these? One is be careful to identify more with the door that's opening up than with the trial that you're walking through. Don't make the trial your address. Don't start thinking in yourself, this is just the way it's going to be forever. I'm just going to be walking through this tough season, this trial, it's persevering identify with the door. The trial is to prepare you for the door. The door is who you are. That's what you're made for, not the trial. Don't settle into your trial because what happens is you might stop believing God for the door if you do that. Everybody hear me. Another tip, pursue God's door, not yours. Make sure that thing that you are moving towards, those plans that you have, that strated, strategic plan for your life, make sure that it is the door that Jesus is opening up. Because when he opens up a door, you did not open that door. He opened it. He defined it. He made it what it is. It almost feels as though we don't even have control in it, and we don't. So let him be the one to define what the door is. And don't get too ahead of Jesus when it comes to what your future looks like. This thing is a, a walk of faith. Another tip, God does it. God does it. If you have walked through the kind of door that I'm talking about, you know on the aftermath, I did not open that door. I mean, in 2005, before Ferris Cox gave me that phone call and asked me to come on the pastoral staff, I was, I was at the end, like finished, Done. I had no power or anything, and the phone rang. That's <laughs> that. My involvement was, hello, there it is. You, you, God opens up the door, and He will open that door. Trust me. 
The question isn't, will he open the door? The question is, will you remain faithful to cling on to what he says that you might even not even know that he's testing you in? Because you usually don't know when you're being tested when you're te- being tested. Okay, so, and then a uh, last little tip I want to give us. You qualify by faith and obedience, not perfection. Some of us in this room feel as though we got, Jesus won't open up a door for me because I've got all these issues. I'm imperfect. I, 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 I. What you're really doing is navel-gazing. You're never going to qualify for the door, ever. Ever, ever, ever. You never will until Jesus returns and we no longer have a sin nature. You will always be disqualified. Stop looking at yourself as to whether or not I'm worthy of the door and look at Jesus, the one who made you worthy, and put your trust in him. And all he's asking is that you follow him to the door. He'll work out your perfection stuff. Just follow him. Verse 9. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. That doesn't mean they will worship you. It means they will come and worship the same one you worship, but at your feet, and to know that I have loved you. And so, you know, there is, I won't say much about this other than to say some of us are walking through a trial, and you have friends and you have family who think you are weird because of what you're remaining faithful in because they haven't gone down that path. And if you will remain faithful in that path, there comes a day where the, the, you become true, proven, and they see it and God sees it. And they start to say, there's something about you and your faith and this God thing that you've been talking about. And usually, sometimes that will also mean stuff will happen in their life where they realize, you've got something I need. Don't give up when it looks like you're the town laughingstock or the family laughing stock. Don't give up. There, if you know what you're walking in is of God, keep in it. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Real quick, does anybody remember what happened in the whole world in around 2007? <laughs> remember those days? the subprime mortgage crisis and the, the disaster that ensued, and without any coordination whatsoever on our part, Minda and I find ourselves in a country, South Africa, in 2009. We, we're not even smart enough to know strategically to do this. In a country whose economic policies had kind of insulated themselves from being too dependent on foreign markets to where when America and the, and the chain of Europe, every, the whole banking system collapses, we're over here in South Africa where the economy basically remained more or less the same. I would call my family during those years and they're talking about the horrors and my brother is looking for a job and I'm like, God, you are amazing. So what I'm saying is, I will, he says, I will keep you from the trial which is about to come on the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. God, not only is there a reward of the open door, but there's protection over you as you walk through the open door. That you will know God did that. He says, behold, verse 11, I am coming quickly. 
That word quickly does not necessarily mean soon. In fact, Jesus said this to Philadelphia 2,000 years ago. Now, I know that a, thousand year, a day is a thousand years of the Lord and all this, but I don't think that, you know, he was writing to people who were alive 2,000 years ago who are not biologically alive anymore. So I, I doubt that's the point that Jesus is making, that I'm coming soon, because all these people were dead, and here we are 2,000 years later, he still hasn't come. That's not what we're talking about. He's not talking about his second coming, I don't think. But that word quickly isn't necessarily soon as in a near time. It's, when, it's the nature of when he comes, it will be sudden. You won't, if you're not watching and looking for it, it's going to surprise you. And that's the way Christians should live, is in the anticipation of what he's doing and even his coming and, and knowing that he knows my works and living in the, is the fear of him. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. I could say a lot here, but I won't for time's sake, but I'll just mention, you've heard of Jacob, the grandchild of Abraham, and many of you know that he, uh, you know, he, he, he was the second born. He shouldn't have received the inheritance of the firstborn, but he got it because his older brother was tired after a long day of hunting, and, his, and Jacob had some porridge, and Esau said, give me the porridge, and Jacob says, I will, but give me your birthright. And because Esau was in a moment of weakness, he sold his birthright, and Jacob, the younger son, got the birthright. And it's a warning to hold fast and let no one may take your crown. And there is something about the tests that we walk through where, if no one else, the enemy wants to keep you from getting your crown. The enemy wants to keep you from walking through, through the door. If we just look at the other churches in Revelation that we've already spoken of. Smyrna, it was discouragement from trials, tribulations, and poverty. That could have stolen them their crown if they surrendered to it. In Pergamos, it was the doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. In Thyatira, it was Jezebel threatening the truth. In Sardis, it was this dead faith. And so I ask ourselves to ask this question of ourselves, where is, am I tempted to compromise? Where might I be tempted to compromise in this season? Where is that thing that I could be tempted to throw in the towel, to stop trusting God, to stop obeying God? That thing, whatever that is, is probably trying to get you in a place where you acquiesce and you hand over the crown, where you hand over the door that Jesus is trying to lead you to. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Do you remember at the beginning I said, and we're about to wrap it up, just want to say this. Do you remember at the beginning I said that reference to the key of David comes from Isaiah 22, 22? Uh, the, the, open up the door that no man can shut. Can I just read that to you real quick in regards to what we just read about I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God? It says, Isaiah 22, 22, the key of the house of David. This is Isaiah 22, 22, written about 700 years before Jesus came to the earth. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open, and I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place. And he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. God wants to fasten us as a peg in a secure place. Isaiah 61 says it this way, that 
to appoint or to set those who mourn in Zion, to give them a calling and an identity, a calling over your life. And it, it's one thing to know that you're called. It was one thing for me at the age of 19 to know that I'm called the nations, called the, to, to, to help churches and, and do these various things. It's one thing to know it. It is another thing to be set by God in a secure place where you're operating in it. And the Father heart over every single one of us wants that for you, to set you. Sharon, I don't want to embarrass you, but I just want to say something I feel in my spirit, just to be free, because I feel like your calling is, it doesn't, it doesn't need to look like the, um, I, I just sense that you're, call, you're, you're called as a servant of, of people, to serve people. And I feel like you identify with that, with, with and, and there can be this big, like, ministry position thing, and I feel like the Lord has desires in you that you may feel aren't spiritual, but they are. They are from Him. I don't even know all of what that may mean. I just feel that for you. Don't feel like you're not a part of this conversation. Do you know what I mean? That's for somebody else. That's, that's for the preachers. No, that's, he's, you're as called as anyone else in this room. To set in a secure place. And so I just want to ask, I, I would encourage everybody, actually don't ask yourself. I would encourage us all to ask God right now. Ask him for the open door. There's some kind of a thing in the kingdom of heaven about the marriage of God working and us reciprocating here on earth. He wants to lead us into an open door, but there's something about us wanting that same open door and we begin to partner together. I remember that, remember that hellish year of 2011 that I talked about in my life? You know how I spent, by the latter end of that year, what I spent every night doing? Every night, going to bed, Minda would be asleep. I would be pacing that, that bedroom saying, God, you spoke Isaiah 61. You spoke the gospel to the poor. I'm asking you for an open door where I, this picture that you've given me from Isaiah 61 would happen, where the, God, where the poor would hear the gospel, where they would he, hope broken hearts would be healed, where I, I would pray it every single night again and again and again. And by the time that door opened, that, the door, I was so expecting it that I wasn't even surprised when it opened. And turning around looking at it, it was a miracle that it happened. And so there's something about asking God, partnering. It's one thing for him to want to open the door, but we've got to want to walk through it. Want it in the, it, something like the way he wants it. 